Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now on an odd Monday, as we look at sport around there, the sport of economics is led by Michael Spence, the laureate and founder of Education Quality at Stanford University and, of course, General Atlantic senior advisor, Professor Spence. Thrilled to have you with us this morning. Michael Spence, we see a White House looking at wages. We see a White House looking for wage lift. And one of the great thinkings, including what we saw from Jamie Dimon's letter, was the ability to get wage growth in America. How do you get wage growth given technology? And how do you get wage growth given the concentration of wages like Amazon and like others, which you guys call monopsony? Right. Well, it's a complicated uh, challenge, but I think, you know, there are a number of things that uh, are important. You have the tax system, which isn't directly wages, but affect incomes. Second, um, you need to strengthen the, uh, the institutions that, you know, support unions uh, and, 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 and change the bargaining power. Um, and that's especially important when you have big monopsony uh, sort of buying power. And, and, and uh, third, you have to deal with this skills challenge that we, that we face. I mean, you know, wages are going to reflect the, you know, the the uh, value of various kinds of labor in the marketplace, regardless of these changes in sort of bargaining power. And um, and we know that as our economy transforms digitally, that we need a new set of skills and we need institutions, public and private, that get that help us get that done, Tom. Uh, Professor, off of your wonderful book, The Next Convergence of a Decade Ago, what is the next labor convergence? Do you perceive globally, as you write with Stiglitz and others about a K-shaped economy, do you see any power for labor to reaffirm what we see in our nostalgia? Yes, I do, actually. You know, I think we're in for, you know, a couple of things. One is a very powerful recovery that's underway in America, and I think will come with a slight lag here in Europe. Second, we have you know um, productivity-enhancing technology that's ready for prime time. Um, and third, we have governments that have decided that uh, that they need to use their fiscal power um, to make sure that the demand side of the market, and particularly the employment side, is good. So. Um, if we convince, you know, a sufficiently large part of the economy to engage in in this uh, process of innovation, I think we could have an employment and productivity boom and a real change in uh, the dynamics that we've been seeing for the last couple of decades. Michael, do a minimum does a minimum wage uh, gap or the idea here of some sort of minimum wage that's higher than where it is now lead to higher wages, fewer jobs, or both? Well, I mean, this is controversial within the economics profession, So, um, and you'll get views on all sides, sometimes politically motivated and sometimes just because people reach different conclusions, Lisa. But, I mean, bottom line is minimum wages probably don't cost us much employment. They affect the incomes at the lower end of the income spectrum, um, but they don't actually have much of an effect 
on, you know, the, this challenge we face in sort of raising middle income incomes relative to the sort of the top 20 percent. Um, so it's an important tool. Uh, we, I think we should use it uh, to the extent our political system allows us. But uh, it's only part of the solution. And I ask because, you know, Tom asked the right question to start this out with, which is the technolo technological innovation that's going to leave a lot of people without the skills, without perhaps a role in the labor market the way that they once did. And certainly if they have a role, it'll be at a much lower rate. What do we do with those people? I'm not saying it sort of it's a lot of people. We all have people <laughs> in our circles who belong there. And their question is, do you do a training? Do you have some sort of universal uh, uh, income? What's your view? I think he used all the available weapons, Lisa. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not sure which version of a, a universal basic income, you know, will finally emerge. But I think we have to put a floor and just not tolerate a situation in which we have poor people. But, but I think we need an all hands on deck, <clears throat> led by government, but with engagement from business and education to tackle to tackle the, the skills transitions that we need as well. So I'm, I'm, this, this challenge is so important um, to the kind of cohesiveness of our society that I think it's an all hands on deck. You use all the instruments you've got uh, to try to deal with it. Michael we Sp have to reverse these trends. Michael Sorry. Spence, in the time that we've got left with you, I think we must turn to your focus over the last decade on China. There's a lot of fears out there. I'm going to say there's some misinformation, but what I mostly note is a careful considered study of the axis between Beijing and Washington. How much power does Beijing have? Well, they have, a, Tom, they have a lot of power now because they have a big, um, thriving economy. It's recovering quickly. It's technologically and in other ways dynamic. I mean, you know, it, it, in every country, including China, you know, if they make some big policy mistakes, um, they could screw it up. But on balance, they have an enormous amount of power that stems from primarily their big domestic market, which people want to have access to as investors and as uh, in, in terms of trade. So they're powerful and we have to deal with them as a, a powerful potential um, trading and investment partner and 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 competitor i look i look michael at china and i look at hong kong and how it's changed what would you recommend if you were consulting to the major western banks on hong kong should they sustain in hong kong or take a different strategy no, I, I think that, you know, they will, they will, I would recommend that they try to hang in there and comply with the laws. But I mean, Bill Wrench uh, made some very interesting remarks, I think, in reporting to Congress. He basically said, we, you know, we're, we're approaching, you know, a kind of a slow motion train wreck in which the major multinationals, including the banks, are going to find themselves, you know, straddling borders and, in, and, and one way or another, you know, not in compliance with the laws and regulations of where they sit. I, I, either way they go. So I think they need to be aware of that and the risks are associated with that. But I, I wouldn't recommend a, a precipitous withdrawal at this point. 
Michael, stay close. I just want to summarise a piece coming out of the White House right now about the labour market and average wages. Tom, you might find this interesting. A couple of weeks ago, we had Jared yep. Bernstein put out a piece on the base effects ahead of the inflation report. And Cecilia Rouse, the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisers over at the White House, has put out a piece just on average wages. Really, really intuitive. I think easy to understand for people with an economics background, perhaps counterintuitive for other people looking at what happened last year, April 2020, because of compositional effects in the labour market. We had a lot of the low earners drop out of the labour force and wages actually surged at a time of immense weakness in the economy. And I think what they're preparing people for, Tom, is just to indicate when that labour composition shifts the other way, you could get negative wage growth in the United States of America and essentially concluding it's nothing to worry about. So we've had a Jared Bernstein piece a couple of weeks ago ahead of an inflation print, preparing everyone to say this is just base effects. And now we have a Cecilia Rouse piece coming out from the White House in a blog, basically preparing people for weaker wages because of compositional effects. Michael, if I can bring you back in just quickly. The economy is going to be sure. pretty complex and nuanced in 2021. This seems to be a big effort from the White House to help everybody understand the signalling that we should take or maybe shouldn't take from economic data. How important do you think that is for this year, just in terms of how we respond, react on Main Street to things like headline inflation, economic data every single month? Well, I think it's very important. I mean, the narrative really matters, and, and, and they're right. You know, if we get a major, major recovery in the shutdown sectors, you know, that we've talked about many times before, which tend to employ the lower end of the uh, wage spectrum folks, if they come back into the labor market or are just re-employed, um, then you could get something that looks like a bad signal in, you know, from the point of view of an administration that's, that is essentially said one of their high priorities is dealing with A, employment, and B, you know, a fairer set of outcomes in terms of, so they want they want the recovery, but they don't want to, people to misinterpret the signals that are coming out of the prices in the labor market or, or elsewhere in the economy. So I think it's really important. Michael, it's good um, to catch up, especially to get a final thought on that, because I agree with you. I think it's important, too. Michael Spence there on the latest in this economy worldwide and the domestic story in America, too. Right now... Not only the conversation of the day for us on vaccination and COVID, but this is the most serious conversation as all of us attend the end of a pandemic. Ofer Levy is with Boston's Children's Hospital that barely describes his assertive work in pediatrics and in vaccinations and precision vaccinations for children. He is an FDA advisory panel member as well. Dr. Levy, thank you so much for joining us now. Is it safe now for an eight-year-old to get the first shot and then the second shot? Uh, thank you for that. Um, uh, look, we are blessed here in the United States to have uh, three vaccines under emergency use authorization. The J&J &J is on pause. Um, however, the youngest age group that can currently receive any of these vaccines are 16-year-old for the Pfizer product. Uh, at the moment, nobody under the age of 16 years is eligible to receive a vaccine. There are ongoing clinical trials to assess safety and efficacy of the coronavirus vaccines 
in those younger than 16 years of age. And to my view, as a pediatrician, right. that's uh, very important. Well, of my time of, say, Leninger, biochem and all that, it comes up to this medical phrase, titer, T-I-T-E-R, or maybe it's simply the dosage allowed. Do we just assume it's the same vaccine for children, just a smaller dosage for little people? No, uh, kids are not just little adults. Uh, you know, uh, from the day we're born to the day we die, the only constant thing in life is change. And our immune system is no different. Uh, when you look at a baby all the way through an elderly individual, the immune system keeps evolving. So we cannot assume uh, that a vaccine that's safe and effective in one age group is safe and effective in another age group. And often uh, dose may be different and immunogenicity, the ability of a vaccine to, to induce protective antibodies could be different. Well, how much higher is the bar in terms of side effects for children, given the fact that they don't present with the same degree of illness on average? Thank you for that. Uh, we, we view it as very important to remember the future, uh, our children, when considering this pandemic. And there are multiple reasons uh, to want to have uh, vaccines against COVID for kids. Although it's uncommon, severe COVID does occur in children in the form of a multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, or MIS-C. Uh, children do become infected and they excrete the virus and they could infect parents or teachers or other children. And uh, because childhood infection is often asymptomatic, uh, other precautions won't suffice. And, you know, the, the majority of, of vaccines in the world are given to kids. The, the majority of the global vaccine market is a pediatric market. And the infrastructure to deliver vaccines across the world is by and large a pediatric infrastructure. So if you want to get a high percentage of a population immunized around the globe for any infection, a pediatric immunization is often the path. Um, and, and so we view this as a very important component of the fight against this pandemic. Well, I want to dovetail this conversation with the J&J &J issue, and this is a delicate uh, topic, but the idea that the J&J &J vaccine was paused in its distribution because of six known cases of this rare thrombosis out of seven million inoculations given, is the bar that much higher for unusual developments, even if they are marginal and very rare when you're inoculating a population that is not as at risk, and I'm thinking about a possible recommendation by the FDA by Friday that perhaps the J&J &J vaccine can go to people who are older than the age of 50, but not younger. Well, uh, you know, vaccines are something that you give to healthy people, so they've got to be safe. And so there, there is a very big emphasis on safety, and that continues even after an authorization. Even after an authorization and you scale the vaccine and you're pushing it out to the population, there are passive and active systems to, to monitor to, uh, surveillance for safety. And if there is a signal, even if it's a small and rare signal, was, as was the case with the J&J, &J, it needs to be pursued. So although the pause is awkward, in my view, it's the right decision. And in the long run, that will lead to confidence in the public mm -hmm. uh, that the federal authorities are taking safety seriously. And of course, when you're developing a vaccine product for kids, uh, safety will come first. And that's why there are rigorous clinical trials now that are double-blinded, placebo-controlled, prospective studies to assess safety and efficacy. Mm -hmm. And when the sponsors, such as Pfizer, believe they have the right data to indicate that, they will submit to FDA, and FDA may convene uh, the advisory committee to look at those data. And as you know, those briefing documents are made publicly available to any American. So we have a very good and transparent process. Dr. Levy, thank you so much. Ofer Levy with us too short a visit. We look forward to another conversation soon. He's with Boston's Children's Hospital, their precision vaccine uh, program. <laughs>
Michael Christmas saves his show right now. He's with Morgan Stanley, their chief investment officer on radio and television, someone with perspective. Michael, over the weekend, I saw a massive re-rationalization of worry. There's no other way to put it. What is the outcome when you see so many people worrying about our collective set of worries? It's quite, uh, quite interesting. But if you look at globally, I mean, the number of positivity cases are rising. India's got problems. And there's several countries around the world. Um, Turkey um, uh, has, has issues. Uh, the United States has had the largest vaccine rollout outside of a few small countries. And um, I think that's one reason why um, the U.S. is doing a little better right now. Things look a little up and up on the U.S., except for bonds, which are looking a little bit on the down and down. I mean, I, I look, Michael, at what to do here, and I guess equity markets is one of our focuses, but you're working in fixed, commas, in fixed income. We've seen this yield lower move, price up, yield down. Is it tradable? It's, it's, it's very difficult. We still think longer term, the trend in yields is, is, is higher. I'm not sure how much higher. We were talking about a you know, 2% kind of a longer term term rate for 10-year 10 10-year 10 treasuries. But in the short term, we had a lot, a lot of positive news on the economy, a surge of, 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 of positivity in terms of the data in, in March. And the market got ahead of itself in terms of predicting when the Fed was going to move. At one point in March, they were predicting a rate hike in 2022. And the Fed has successfully, I think, pushed against that logic and that narrative such that now it's being pushed back out again. If the market is con continues to trade short and the, and the Fed continues to double down on its no, no rate hikes till mid-2023 or late, even later than that, then the Treasury market has room to stay, you know, stay, stay firm. I mean, yields staying on the low side. Michael, can you talk about the relationship between the U.S. Treasury market and Europe right now? We've had some really interesting calls. The Bloomberg team over in London putting them together. BNP Paribas and Manulife looking for 10-year yields in Germany to maybe turn positive by year end and get back towards zero. What would that mean for the Treasury market, Michael? That's a very good point. Another reason why I think Treasuries have done so well in the last several weeks is that yields are exceptionally high in the U.S. relative to the rest of the world. And with the vaccines rollout accelerating in Europe and getting better and lockdowns presumably ending at some point in the in the late spring, that Europe will catch up. So one constraint, I think, that's been on the for the rise in 10-year treasuries has been the low level of yields outside the U.S. So if that narrative is, is some merit to it, then in order to get U.S. yields higher, European yields have to go higher first in order to catch up a bit with the U.S. So, yes, I think if, you, if you're looking for higher U.S. yields, you probably have to look for higher European yields um, first. What if I'm looking for income? Right now, Michael, where am I going? Uh, right now, the, the place to go is in, is in credit markets, whether it's in, in structured credit like mortgage-backed securities and or um, investment-grade credit, corporate credit or high-yield credit. In a world of stability, um, are we entering a kind of Goldilocks period where things are slowing down? Remember, the Chinese economy is, is slowing down. It's very likely on an annual basis it will be growing slower than the U.S. in the first half of this year. That's good news for the global economy. We don't want a too, the boom being too strong such that central banks actually need to push higher rates higher sooner than otherwise. So a slowdown in China relative to the rest of the world or emerging markets not doing that well in the short run relative developed markets also softens the surge in seeing an impact of the surge in spending in the United States, which lengthens the business cycle, which lengthens the probability that credit spreads will stay 
stay low. I have to ask this, Michael, because we are seeing a post-credit crisis tights on spreads, basically the extra yield that investors earn to own uh, credit over rates. Is there any sign of froth? Are there any pockets? Or is this all making sense to you based on where we are? It, it, it makes sense to me. If you look at the history of credit spreads, they, they are at the tight end of the range. In many cases, they are, depending upon the security company and, and, and rating, they are near their all-time lows, which we saw in the very early 2000s or in the mid-90s. However, we are in a relatively unique economic situation. Historically, when do you see credit spreads widening and see significant underperformance, whether it's high yield or IG, is when we're nearing the end of the business cycle and the Fed is raising rates. If you look historically, that's what you see. And right now, it looks pretty clear to me that the Fed is not raising rates till at least you know, probably the end of 2022, 2023. Michael, it's good to see you. As always, good to hear from you. Michael Cushman, Morgan Stanley CIO of Global Fixed Income. Yields in last week by seven or so basis points on a 10-year this morning. Unchanged, Tom, at 158 on 10s, on 30s. Your yield, 227. You know, off the gloom of the weekend, John, a real yield from a negative 0.81 to a negative 0.79. I guess that's a little bit of a move here and a recalibration as well. To me, it's what you see with Coca-Cola and also with Harley-Davidson. I mean, it's a discrete, smaller story unique to uh, motorcycles, John, around the world and across America. But I'm sorry, when you shift your revenue guesstimate, any responsible manager from 22.5% up 10 full points to 32.5%, that vector, that dynamic gets your, gets your attention. Lisa raising the outlook on a better 2021. How many times have we seen that? I'm struggling right now because I know you're going to make fun of me for being a Debbie Downer, but I'm just trying to uh, understand the consequences of the moral hazard of allowing companies to pile on debt at very low costs. It keeps them alive for longer. What does it do down the line? Have we forever prolonged a credit default cycle or is this going to be something that we will feel at a later date? And there is a question of the precedent that the Fed has set. Are they part of the fundamentals, as you've asked before, John, in terms of swooping in and saving credit markets? if everything goes south. Well, every dollar of debt is not equal. So let's think about where the dollar of debt has gone so far. And we mentioned last week on this show the amount that's gone to refinancing year to date for high yield. So 72%, according to Barclays, more than 70% of high yield issuance has gone to refinancing. So these are... We are thrilled that Michael Scholl joins us right now with Market Field Asset Management. Of course, his great affection for one of those Super League teams, Manchester United. Michael, I want you to bring this into the arc of this asset boom that we're in. Is the Super Leaguing of English football, of European football, just another symbol of the global financialization of these times? I mean, the short answer is is yes. I mean, you know, the commercialization of sport, you know, has 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 accelerated over over the last over the last twenty years. Uh, you know, and I think that you know the the, the COVID period, um, you know, you know has has, you know, I, I think crystallized the needs of the largest clubs to make sure that they, you know, that that they can continue to increase their share of whatever revenue is available. Um, you know, as for J.P. Morgan, I'll point out that J.P. Morgan was the bank that financed the leveraged buyout of Manchester United back in 2005. Yeah. Um, you know, which was a transaction that nobody actually thought could get done. Um, so, you know, J.P. Morgan has had a hand in the commercialization of, 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 of English football, you know, back to that period of time. And, you know, I, I would look at that LBO of Man United as, as, as one of the sort of 
key, you know, key moments which have got us to this, you know, sad story today. Michael, we've been familiar with this conversation now for the best part of two decades, and I think this feels very different. As I read through these headlines again, that JP Morgan is underwriting this, but the clubs themselves have signed to a binding deal that was key to JP Morgan's backing, and that's according to our sources, Michael. So this isn't just a threat anymore, is it? This feels real. Uh, you know, it does feel real. I mean, it's possible that, that, that some kind of political intervention will, will um, you know, make it harder. I mean, you could, you could have a windfall tax put on the clubs or, or something of that nature. And, and I'm sure any binding agreement has some sort of force majeure clause, you know, clause within it. But no, I, I think this is a, you know, this is a genuine attempt to recast who owns sport. Um, and, you know, this is somewhat you know, it's a more radical version of the Premier League itself, which was an attempt of the larger clubs to take control of, of English football away from the league. In this case, it would be European clubs taking control of the sport away from UEFA, which is the, you know, which is the European League. Um, but, but no, this feels like a definite attempt to change things. Um, it is possible that this particular proposal, you know, you know gets diverted, but it will only get diverted by another massive shift of revenue and control towards yep. the, the largest clubs within, you know, you know, within Europe. And you know, th this change is coming. Well, Michael, let's talk about what could jeopardise this just briefly. There has been a push from the domestic leagues to say that if you go ahead and do this, you won't be able to participate in the domestic competition. But I think the bigger threat is a threat that hangs over the players that participate in this, which is from FIFA, that could mean that these players wouldn't participate in the international game anymore and represent their country. Now, Michael, as you look through sports, can you think of a precedent here before and whether that is an effective stick to stop this from happening? You know, it did happen in cricket. You know, cricket's a very, very different game. It was not heavily awesome. commercialised in the 1970s. And uh, an Australian TV mogul, Kerry Packer, you know, did create his own, you know, better paid, you know, Australian cricket league and did get some of the best global players to play in that league. And for a period of time, they did not play test cricket. Now, you know, that lasted a few years. Um, was fairly successful. Some players didn't join the league some, and, and stayed playing international cricket. Some players did, and you know everything merged together again. Um, you know, but I think you know, you know, at this point in time, the players themselves are so much more commercialised, and the agents themselves are, are, you know, big businesses. You know, you know, with, within themselves. And my guess is that, that there's been a lot of behind-the-scenes conversations about this. So I, I think that most of the best players would prioritize playing in the best club football yep. over international football. I don't think it's universal, but I think enough of them would um, that all that would happen if you banned them from the international game is the international game itself would become you know, something of a backwater. And you'd, you'd end up with two-tier sport. Domestic sport, club together with, with international sport, and then above it, this sort of super pan-European you know, pan league, which really would be you know, garnering the best you know, the best TV slots, the best ratings, the best sponsorship. Um, you know, and that's what the world would look like. Well, Michael, let's pick up on the TV slots point. I'm really looking forward to hearing from Paul Sweeney a little bit later on this morning to see what he's got to say about where this leaves the broadcasters, Tom, who have signed multi-year contracts yeah. with some of these broadcasting issues. In the leagues like the Premier League in the UK, for that matter, over in Spain too. I know recently one was just signed for Serie A over in Italy. Now, you telling me those broadcasters will stick to those mm -hmm. deals or won't try and come back again and say, hold on a minute, well, if you've not got Manchester United, if you've not got Real Madrid playing, you've not got Barcelona playing, what am I paying for? 
And we'll have to see, and we welcome all of you on radio and television, this historic moment where an American bank, J.P. Morgan, will finance the changing of, Amer of English football and, of course, all of European football as well. Lisa? Yeah, well, this is the question here, the idea of U.S. banks moving into financing European football. Is this an investment opportunity? Is this a rejiggering of the entire financing of the major European sport? Michael, what's your view on that in terms of European sports as a potential investment opportunity and U.S. banks having an increasingly heavy hand in financing it? You know, the, the, the story of, of football has been that as, as revenues increase, you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, so much of the money ends up leaving the game to players, you know, to players and agents. So, I mean, I think this would be, you know, this would be similar to what's happened when, when the value of TV rights has, has exploded. Yes, the clubs generate more revenue. Um, you know, they end up spending it greatly on player compensation, agent compensation, and, um, you know, you know, transfer fees, which is a, you know, a European football phenomenon. Um, you know, do, you know, do some of the sort of super clubs manage to, to, you know, to continue to sort of increase their value? Yes, probably. Um, but I don't think, you know, I, I think that, that, that at the end of the day, you know, European clubs probably close the gap on their large, on the, between their values and the, and the values of the largest American franchises. But, it, you know, it wouldn't make European football more valuable than, say, the NFL or the NBA. I mean, I, I think, you, you know, I think that, you know, it would, it would simply close the gap between one and the other. Juventus right now over in trading over in Milan are up by around about 15%. So this wow. market likes what it hears. And Tom, I think the real tragedy of this, if there is one for many people, is what happens to the smaller clubs, the smaller teams that get left behind in all of this well, and don't get to compete or at least even try to get access to compete in Europe's largest sport on Europe's biggest stage. Well, this is important. Michael Scholl, again, Stephen from Hong Kong emails in and says, you haven't mentioned West Ham. Michael Scholl, I believe West Ham is not a Super League uh, team. I mean, how do we keep West Ham and the others motivated to be part of elite football? Uh, I mean, you can't in that situation. You can create a second-tier competition, you know, which is competitive. And, and you know, as I said, this happened in the English game. The English game used to be more, 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 more unified until the Premier League came along. Um, you know, I, I think, as they say, it just becomes, as they say, it does become a two-tier, you know, it does become a two-tier sport. Um, you know, I think there would be enough, in, there would be enough interest outside of this Super League to maintain something below it. But it would be, you know, it would be second tier. Um, and retaining young players would be much more, you know, would be much more difficult. So, as I say, I, I don't think you'd see the elimination of, of this second tier, but it would be a much drearier, less hopeful place. Um, funnily enough, on a sort of day-to-day -day basis, it, you know, it can still be, you know, it can still be, it can still be enjoyable. But, you know, there's a sadness to it. But, you know, at the moment, any club over a period of time with the right financing and the right management can theoretically become a very successful club at the highest level. Michael, um, fantastic to get you change. on the program to get your thoughts on this. Just a really important change for the world's biggest sport. Michael Schau there, Market Field Asset Management CEO. That was wonderful.
right now, and I've been really anticipating it. Thanks, Paris, for bringing him in. Esra Prasad is with us. He is at Cornell that barely describes the fact he is definitive on China with his tour of duty at the International Monetary Fund, his work at Brown in Chicago as well. We're thrilled that Professor Prasad uh, could join us uh, this morning. Eswar, I have all sorts of books on China right now. Stravitas and Ackerman's uh, 2034, the book by Kishore Mababani, the book by George Magnus. And within all of this, is amateurs like me oversimplifying of getting things too simple? Give us one window into the complexities of this modern China. So China certainly wants to drive the um, debate on a variety of issues on the multilateral front. China's hope um, before the COVID pandemic hit was to pitch itself as the great globalizer in contrast uh, to the previous administration, which was against multilateralism, which was against globalization. But now things are shifting. Um, there is pushback against China, including from many of its uh, close trading partners, such as Australia. Um, and it looks like multilateralism is slowly making its way back into Washington. Whether the world is going to buy Washington's move towards multilateralism um, after what happened over the last four years remains to be seen. But certainly China is going to be a very important player in terms of driving the rules in international trade and finance. And whether the U.S. is going to try to fill the void that it left for the last few years is going to be the key power play for the next uh, three or four years. Professor, let's talk about where that void has been more pronounced in the last five years, and that's within the Asia region. There was a conversation just for a brief moment of time about the United States establishing some kind of partnership with Asian countries to have trade in the same way that maybe Europe does. At least that was a story for the future. Professor, then the previous administration left that behind. Do you see them re-establishing that down in D.C.? an effort to put a stronger foothold within the region in Asia to attract those countries to deal with the United States in a way that they haven't been able to? So as you correctly put it, Jonathan, there wasn't a pivot towards Asia and then a pivot away from Asia and indeed from the rest of the world. And now I think we will see a more gradual um, pivot back towards Asia because that's where a lot of the action is. And the Biden administration has made it clear while it is willing to um, talk about multilateralism, it is going to take a tough line in particular against China. So on trade issues, the baseline of conflict that it came into uh, with China, that is going to remain the baseline. So it's not going to go off the baseline. If anything, they're going to bring a larger set of issues into that uh, discussion. And the recent discussion with the um, uh, Japanese uh, um, leadership, of course, points out um, that the U.S. is trying to strategically bring its allies around. Now, the problem for countries in Asia is whether they can really trust the U.S., because they did trust the U.S. earlier, even though they have very close relationships with uh, China, both trade, financial um, and political. Um, and they're concerned now about whether they can really trust the U.S. to watch their back. So I think what the Biden administration does in terms of not just talk, but action in the next yeah. two or three years is going to be really crucial. I want to dovetail this conversation with a book that you just wrote on digital currencies, the idea that China is launching a digital UN. How much does a digital UN give China an upper hand in economic dominance? So the book is coming in September. I wish it was here already. It would have been a great time. Uh, but thank you for mentioning that. Um, the digital yuan is something that is crucial for uh, domestic purposes in China. I think the Chinese government is very concerned about Alipay and WeChat Pay dominating the payment space. They want an alternative. They want to keep retail central bank money relevant in China. But is this going to 
rival the dollar's dominance in any way? Not really. Most international payments are already digital. And ultimately, what matters for a currency's role in international payments is how deep that country's financial markets are, how much investors trust it, especially trust its institutional framework, such as an independent central bank, an institutionalized system of checks and balances, and so on. China doesn't quite have that. So certainly the digital yuan, in addition to China's cross-border interbank payment system, which is the payment system that can talk with other countries' payment systems, will help the yuan become a more important international currency. But a larger reserve currency, that will take a lot more. So we hope that when you come back, that book is published and we can have that conversation then. Eswar Prasad there, the Cornell University Senior Professor of Trade Policy. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.